Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Tobradex ST, turn on relief. Using a fixed dose combination therapy enhanced with Zangen suspension technology, Tobradex ST provides an optimized and consistent delivery of tobramycin and dexamethasone in every drop. For full prescribing and safety information, visit www.mytobradexst.com. That's M-Y-T-O-B-R-A-D-E-X-S-T.com. Greetings! Here we are for the Mod Pod's final episode of 2020. Thanks so much for choosing to listen. We have four more articles from Modern Optometry's November-December issue, all of which are on different topics. Let's dive right in. Jessica Haynes, an optometrist at Charles Retina Institute in Germantown, Tennessee, will start us out with a discussion on some of the more common retinal lesions ODs can encounter in the clinic because recognizing the presentations of these common culprits can help clinicians refer patients promptly when necessary. A lesion is defined as an abnormal change in structure of an organ or part due to injury or disease. Lesions in the retina can occur from numerous etiologies. They may be tumorous, vascular, degenerative, inflammatory, traumatic, or even infectious. There are more off-the-wall retinal lesions documented than anyone could ever fully keep track of, but on a daily basis we are much more likely to encounter certain usual suspects. It is important to know how to identify these common lesions and differentiate them from other conditions. In this article I highlight some of the retina's most common culprits. Choroidal nevus is the most common intraocular tumor. These are benign tumors composed of melanocytes, and they occur in about 3 to 10% of the population. As these are lesions in the choroid, they disappear or are much less evident with use of a red-free or green filter than with use of a white light. Although conversion of a nevus to choroidal melanoma is rare, patients should be monitored for signs of this occurrence. The following signs should draw concern for melanoma. Thickness greater than 2 millimeters, subretinal fluid, visual symptoms, orange pigment, margins less than or equal to 3 millimeters from the disc, ultrasonographic hollowness, absence of halo, and the absence of drusen. These signs have been turned into the catchy mnemonic to find small ocular melanoma, use helpful hints daily. OCT can be used to document nevus size and thickness and to evaluate for overlying drusen or subretinal fluid. Fundus autofluorescence, or FAF, can be used to look for the presence of orange pigment. Nevi may create modeled autofluorescence due to the disruption of the overlying retinal pigment epithelium, or RPE, 
the orange pigment composed of lipofusion will be highly hyperautofluorescent. Nevi may be confused with another frequently encountered lesion, congenital hypertrophy of the retinal pigment epithelium, or CHIRPI. These flat lesions of the RPE will be visible with red-free or green filter. OCT will show atrophy of the outer retina overlying the lesion, and they will be hypoautofluorescent on FAF. Although the risk of conversion to a malignant lesion is not zero, it is significantly less than that for nevi, and these lesions typically do not require as frequent observation. Technically, the most common type of peripheral retinal degeneration is microcystoid degeneration. But lattice degeneration is a more clinically significant finding that occurs in about 10% of the population. Patients with lattice degeneration have increased risk for retinal detachment. Although the overall risk is low, around 1%, lattice degeneration and atrophic retinal holes are responsible for about 30% of retinal detachments. Lattice degeneration can lead to trouble in multiple ways. Lattice represents thin areas of retina, and these regions have dense vitreous adhesions. As patients age and undergo posterior vitreous detachment, or PVD, Areas of lattice degeneration are prime locations for retinal breaks to occur. Patients with lattice degeneration should be thoroughly educated about symptoms of acute PVD, such as flashes of light and new onset floaters. Patients should be carefully examined and monitored during acute PVD events. In addition, patients with lattice degeneration are at increased risk of developing atrophic retinal holes that may lead to slowly progressive retinal detachment without visual symptoms until the more central vision is affected. These patients should be educated to monitor their peripheral vision and report any incidents of new shadows or curtains in their peripheral vision. They should also be monitored carefully with dilated fundus examination to look for subclinical retinal detachments. The benefit of prophylactic photocoagulation for individuals with lattice degeneration is disputed because of the low incidence of complication from these lesions. Most often, lattice degeneration without holes is monitored without treatment unless there is some increased cause for concern such as history of retinal detachment in the fellow eye. Some may elect to refer patients who have atrophic retinal holes to a retina specialist Retinal holes with associated subretinal fluid should be referred for evaluation and possible treatment. Retinal tears associated with lattice degeneration should also be referred for treatment. White without pressure is a common peripheral retina finding often seen in young patients with myopia. The etiology of white without pressure is not well understood. Although white without pressure presents no increased risk for retinal detachment, it is often mistaken for retinal detachment or peripheral retinoschisis. White without pressure is a flat lesion, but it can be deceiving, giving an optical illusion of elevation. White without pressure and retinal detachment can be located anywhere in the peripheral retina, but peripheral retinoschisis is most often bilateral and located temporally, with the infratemporal quadrant being its most common locus. If there is presence of a pigment demarcation line around the lesion, there should be increased suspicion for retinal detachment. Peripheral retinoschisis should be monitored due to increased risk of retinal detachment. Retinal detachments must be referred for treatment.
Diabetes is at the top of the list for far too many negative health effects. One of them is that it is the most common cause of blindness in working age adults. Numerous lesions present in patients with diabetic retinopathy. Physicians should be on the lookout for lesions including microaneurysms, retinal hemorrhages, exudates, cotton wool spots, intraretinal microvascular abnormalities or IRMA, retinal neovascularization, iris neovascularization, preretinal hemorrhage, and vitreous hemorrhage. Patients with mild nonproliferative retinopathy will present with few microaneurysms or retinal hemorrhages. Presence of cotton wool spots or exudates puts patients into the category of moderate MPDR. In addition, individuals with macular exudates must be evaluated carefully for the presence of diabetic macular edema. Irma, which represents damaged retinal capillaries, essentially looks like small squiggly blood vessels. These can be difficult to see clinically and spotting them requires careful evaluation. Patients with clinically visible Irma should be staged as having severe MPDR. Patients who have significant retinal hemorrhages in all four quadrants or two quadrants of venous beating should also be staged as having severe MPDR. Referral to a retina specialist should be considered for those with severe MPDR. Any presence of retinal neovascularization puts a patient into the stage of proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Patients with PDR should be referred for treatment due to high risk of vision loss. Patients with diabetic retinopathy who present with either vitreous or preretinal hemorrhage should raise high suspicion for PDR. In this state, neovascularization grows on the surface of the retina, and when it bleeds, it creates either preretinal or vitreous hemorrhage. Age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the most common cause of vision loss in older patients in the United States. A shocking statistic published a few years ago noted that primary eye care physicians have overlooked findings of AMD in 25% of patients. Drusen are the hallmark lesion of AMD. Especially in at-risk patient populations, retinal examination should be carefully performed so as not to overlook these lesions. Drusen that are larger than 125 microns, about the width of a retinal vessel as it crosses the disc margin, are considered large, and large drusen constitute the diagnosis of intermediate AMD. Pigmentary abnormalities are also considered a hallmark of intermediate stage AMD. These two findings increase the risk of conversion to advanced stages of AMD. Patients with these conditions require frequent monitoring and heavy patient education about at-home vision monitoring. Patients with intermediate AMD can also benefit from vitamin supplementation, as demonstrated in the AREG trials. Advanced AMD can either be exudative with the de development of cordial neovascularization, or CEMV, or non-exudative with the development of geographic atrophy, or GA. Early detection of exudative AMD is crucial so that treatment for maintenance of central vision can be initiated with anti-VEGF injections. Any patient with signs of intra- or subretinal fluid, retinal hemorrhage, particularly subretinal hemorrhage, exudation, or retinal thickening should be carefully evaluated for the potential of CMV. Detection of CMV is most often aided now by OCT imaging. OCT angiography can also be highly useful, and occasionally intravenous fluorescein angiography 
or endocyanine green angiography may still be employed. GA unfortunately has no true treatment, but detection is important for management of patients' visual needs. OCT imaging and FAF are useful for tracking GA and for providing patient education. Use the guidance presented here to be on the lookout for these common retinal culprits. A firm knowledge of the presentations of these lesions allows clinicians to achieve better diagnosis and management. In addition, it, it better equips us to understand when a lesion doesn't fit the profile of one of the usual suspects, so we can then dive into less commonly encountered conditions. The information in Dr. Haynes' article can also better equip optometrists to understand when a lesion doesn't fit the profile of one of the usual suspects. If you're more of a visual person, check her article out online at modernod.com to see examples of different lesion types. On a different note, how much do you know about Demodex blepharitis? Keep listening to hear Jacqueline Garlic give the lowdown on this common parasite. She wrote this primer with Leslie O'Dell. In it, they explain what Demodex blepharitis is, how to manage it and educate patients about it, and they talk about options for treatment. The Demodex mite is the most common microscopic ectoparasite found on the human skin, specifically in or near the pilosebaceous unit, which consists of the hair, the hair follicle, erector pili muscle, and sebaceous gland. About 65 species of Demodex are known, but only two, Demodex folliculorum and Demodex brevis, are responsible for Demodex blephritis. In this article, we will take a closer look at educating patients about Demodex blephritis and treating the condition. Demodex mites are tiny, ranging from 0.15 millimeters to 0.4 millimeters in length, making them nearly invisible to the naked eye. However, the presence of cylindrical dandruff, also known as collarettes, at the base of the eyelash is considered to be pathognomonic for the presence of Demodex folliculorum. The debris is present at the base of the eyelash follicle, where it remains as the lash grows. The wax-like dandruff is composed of Demodex mite remains and the hyperkeratinization caused by microabrasions from the mite's claws. Collarettes are best observed on the superior eyelid while examining patients with their lids closed under slit lamp magnification. Other signs of Demodex infestation include meibomian gland dysfunction, lid margin erythema, follicular distension, lash loss, and misdirected lashes, as the infestation can alter the structure of the follicles. Symptoms can resemble those of many other ocular surface issues and can include itching, burning, foreign body sensation, crusting, tearing, blurry vision, discomfort, and irritation. Because patients with Demodex blephritis can often be asymptomatic, it is important to begin every clinical evaluation at the slit lamp with the patient's eyes closed for a better view of the superior lid and lash margin, looking for the presence of collarettes. Left untreated, the chronic inflammation associated with Demodex blephritis can have many sequelae on the lid and on the ocular surface, such as chronic corneolum and chalasia. Chronic meibomian gland inflammation can lead to morphologic changes of the meibomian glands, gland atrophy, and meibomian gland dysfunction. Eyelid changes have also been noted with chronic inflammation, including lid margin telangiectasia, thickening of the lid margin, ocular rosacea, and even laxity of the eyelid over time. Chronic 
Demonex blepharitis is harmful to the follicles, leading to thinning and loss of eyelashes. If inflammation persists, ocular surface involvement can be seen. Blepharoconjunctivitis is a common presentation. Demodex blepharitis should be considered in the presence of refractory recurrent blepharoconjunctivitis in the pediatric population. Demodex infestation can cause various site-threatening corneal lesions, including superficial corneal vascularization, marginal infiltration, and flectenual-like lesion, superficial opacities, and nodular scarring of the cornea. Due to the involvement of the cornea and the conjunctiva with demodex infestations, it is not uncommon to see contact lens intolerance in these patients. As with all ocular conditions, it is important to educate patients about the findings of their examination. Demodex blepharitis, however, requires a complicated conversation. When presenting this diagnosis, it is best to normalize it to prevent psychoses and educate the patient that demodex mites are a common finding on human skin. Due to the overlap with the symptoms and clinical presentation of dry eye, it is imperative that we look for demodex blepharitis on all patients. For some, a correct diagnosis will improve outcomes significantly when combined with dry eye treatment. Tea tree oil is an essential oil from the Melaleuca folia plant that is known for its anti-inflammatory and antiseptic properties. Tea tree oil has been found effective at reducing the number of demodex mites and associated ocular surface inflammation in patients with demodex blepharitis. Scientists have identified T40 as the most common active ingredient in the tea tree oil and isolated it for treatment of demodex. Clearidex, which contains a high concentration of T40, has been shown to effectively kill adult mites within 40 minutes of exposure. Laser in vivo confocal microscopy, IVCM, has been shown to be an effective non-invasive tool for the detection of demodex mites. A recent study used IVCM to detect mites and eggs in patients treated topically with T40 wipes or with a combination of topical T40 wipes and oral ivermectin. The researchers found that in both treatment groups, there was a significant reduction in the mite population. There was also an increase in the prevalence of detectable Demodex eggs in both treatment groups, suggesting a pulse treatment may be the most effective when using topical agents such as T40. In-office treatments can be initiated with a micro-exfoliation procedure to begin the removal of collarettes. If this alone does not clear the lashes of collarettes, Jehovah oil can be applied to the lash base with a cotton tip applicator and patients instructed to use T40 twice daily for two weeks. Typically because of the two-week life cycle of the Demodex mite, a return visit two weeks after initial treatment is recommended. In-office visits should be repeated bi-weekly until the mite count reaches zero based on the absence of clinical signs of cholerets. Although T40 has been shown to be demodocidal, new research indicates that T40, even at low levels, is toxic to human meibomian gland epithelial cells. Chen et al. recently found a dose and time-dependent decrease in cell survival of human meibomian gland epithelial cells with changes noted 15 minutes after exposure to 1% T40 and cell death after 90 minutes. These data confirm the need for evaluation of the meibomian gland structure and function prior to initiating any tea tree oil-based treatment and continued monitoring for changes over the treatment period. 
it may also spark us to look for alternative treatments. A few alternative treatments with limited evidence of safety and efficacy are available. Manuka honey has antibacterial and anti-inflammatory properties, and research shows it to be effective in treating the common comorbidity of Demodex blepharitis and rosacea. Optimal is a topical Manuka honey eye drop that may have some effect on Demodex, but continued research is needed. Fishman et al. recently reported the effects of intense pulse light on a Demodex mite extracted from a patient with ocular rosacea. Their results suggest that intense pulse light application with settings identical to those used for the treatment of dry eye disease causes complete destruction of the mite. Another recent study suggests that the topical lid cleanser, Zocufoam, may have demodicidal properties. The study authors concluded that Zocufoam effectively killed Demodex significantly faster than preservative-free saline. This okra-based cleanser killed Demodex about 91 minutes after exposure compared with the saline group at around 18 hours. Past studies have used mineral oil, which has a demodicidal rate similar to that of Zocufoam, as a control. More research is needed before Zocufoam would take the place of tea tree oil-based treatments. TPO3 is a topical ophthalmic medication that targets the Demodex mite and has the potential to be the first prescription topical treatment for Demodex blepharitis. In the phase 2A Saturn 1 trial, treatment with TPO3 was effective, achieving cholera cure in 72% of patients and mite eradication in 78% of patients at day 42. Demodex is a common human parasite that can play an important role in contributing to ocular surface disease. Identifying these mites as the etiology of your patient's symptoms can lead to profound improvements on their ocular surface. Demodex blepharitis is a growing concern and our treatment options are limited. Have you thought to take the time during this pandemic to better yourself, your practice, and your patient's experience? One OD did and he wrote about it. That's next after this short break. Tobradex ST Turn On Relief Using a fixed-dose combination therapy enhanced with Zangen suspension technology, Tobradex ST provides an optimized and consistent delivery of tobramycin and dexamethasone in every drop. For full prescribing and safety information, visit www.mytobradexst.com. That's M-Y-T-O-B-R-A-D-E-X st.com Support for this podcast comes from Brynmar Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Stephen Cohen, an optometrist at Dr. My Eyes in Scottsdale, Arizona, offers a thought-provoking piece on potential silver linings in the gray COVID cloud. In it, Dr. Cohen offers ideas for boosting a practice's health as optometrists move forward in and eventually after the COVID-19 pandemic. 
challenges from the COVID-19 pandemic will be analyzed and scrutinized for years to come. However, through these challenges come opportunities. For our practices, one solution is to become as patient-centric as possible. This is not to say that our patients' needs haven't been primary in our practices, but rather that we can become a valued resource beyond what we've previously provided in eye care. Perhaps at no time has communication been more important. It is not enough to take the steps to create a safe environment for your staff and patients. You must also inform them about what you have done or plan to do to promote safety. All steps should be clearly noted on your website, in a mass email to your patients, and on visible signage in your office. Patients will appreciate your efforts, and this, in turn, will help to quell their anxiety. Keep in mind for some patients, a visit to your office may be among the first excursions they take. We all know the anxiety people are feeling during this pandemic. Recently, a patient of mine who is a psychotherapist working with trauma patients described it quite well. She said that with COVID-19, no one knows where the risk is. So our central nervous systems are on fire and we are in perpetual fight or flight mode. Knowing this can help us relate better to our patients, understanding that their needs may be greater, their anxiety higher, and their patients thinner than normal. The best approach is to meet people where they are and come from a position of empathy. If they feel safe in your office, that fight or flight rheostat may be turned down. Always find ways to show respectful concern, not only for patients' physical well-being, but also for their mental and emotional states. One of the common problems for practitioners historically has been time management. Insurance reimbursement and practice models have required us to see more and more patients in order to meet financial demands. During COVID-19, many practices have modified their schedule templates and are seeing fewer patients per day. Therefore, we need to revisit our business models and seek ways to increase our per patient revenue in order to sustain our practices. Take advantage of the increased time you now have with each patient. Get to know them better. Show your interest and concern by checking to see how they are doing. Use this time to listen. The stories I go home with at the end of my workday are not about diagnoses I may have nailed, but rather about interesting conversations I've had with patients. In addition to building better bonds with our patients, we now have the chance to gather more information from which we might be able to provide solutions to their problems. By meeting the needs of the patients we serve, we can at the same time help to meet the fiscal needs of our practices. By spending more time with each patient and practicing active listening, we can identify opportunities that we might otherwise have missed. The amount of time spent on electronic devices today is staggering. It is urgent for eye care professionals to provide expert opinions on how to minimize adverse consequences in adults working and children learning remotely. Eye strain, fatigue, fluctuations of vision, sustained distance blur after near work, redness, dryness, epiphora, muscle tension, fatigue, and decreased comprehension and retention are all signs or symptoms that can be direct results of this lifestyle. Patients may see eye strain and other ailments as a price of modern living, but checking for these problems must be a significant part of our history, exam, and professional recommendations. I discuss ergonomics, 
lighting, the need for frequent breaks, the 20-20-20 rule, and the use of blink exercises, lubricating drops, and computer glasses. I educate parents about the short and long-term impacts of device use on their children, including increased dry eyes and the potential impact of blue light. As a result, we've had a dramatic increase in optical sales, as even mild prescriptions can help to reduce eye strain and the coatings that block UV, glare, and blue, blue light can help reduce discomfort while also protecting the eyes. There are many so-called blue light glasses available online, but I remind parents that unless it is so specified, they cannot verify how much blue light is being blocked. In addition, these glasses do not contain any prescription to help balance the eyes and the quality of the lenses is often poor. Contact lenses have attracted attention during the pandemic. For a brief time in the early days, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended that patients not wear contact lenses. This was quickly found to be unnecessary. The key has become the type of contact lens prescribed. Prioritizing comfort and hygiene is more important than ever. Our goals, therefore, are to provide optimal performance and health and to reduce the frequency with which patients touch their lenses and their eyes. Current circumstances heighten the need and benefit of moving patients to daily replacement contact lenses. My lens of choice has been the AccuView Oasis One Day with Hydrolux technology, which includes the highest level of UV blocking and offers stable performance throughout the day. Daily's Total One is another brand that has performed well under current circumstances. An interesting twist, not in the daily replacement category, is the AccuView Oasis with Transitions Light Intelligent Technology, which blocks about 15% of visible light, primarily in the blue wavelength, indoors. This could be a novel and timely benefit of this relatively new contact lens on the market. Some rules have been softened during the pandemic. We can extend contact lens prescriptions for patients unable or unwilling to come to our offices. Additionally, many companies and distributors are offering free shipping to patients, adding to their convenience and allowing our offices to save time and reduce patient flow into our practices. In our office, we have tried to be as understanding and accommodating as possible. We believe this goodwill on our part will lead to greater loyalty and referrals from our patients. We have already gained new patients who tell us that their previous doctors wouldn't extend their prescription, but also couldn't schedule them for an examination. Companies have offered helpful resources, introducing services such as Lens Assist, a virtual training platform with free live chat support, an eye care provider locator, making it more convenient for patients to connect with practitioners, and a rewards program offering patients added savings. These tools aim to ensure that patients' safety, comfort, and accessibility to proper care remain top priorities. Other companies are offering expanded benefits, including more liberal rebates on dispensing annual lens supplies. This should consistently be our recommendation when we finalize a contact lens prescription. Dispensing an annual supply increases replacement and recall compliance, supports optimal eye health and safety, and saves money for patients. 
When we prescribe lenses, we say to the patient, we are now approving you for a year's supply of contacts. This will give you all the lenses you need between now and next year's exam and is the most cost-effective way to buy your lenses. Another company offers an excellent program, which allows patients to order contact lenses over time, receive free direct express shipping, and still participate in available rebates. This is a quintessential time to broaden the services you provide to better meet the needs of your patients. If you do not already use a telemedicine platform, you should consider doing so. This will increase your availability, allowing you to see some of your non-office hour emergency patients remotely. Some people are uncomfortable leaving their homes at this time, and a telemedicine visit can save both you and the patient time while avoiding the potential risks of coming to your office. Additionally, some platforms, such as iCare Live, allow you to charge a patient's credit card at the end of the visit or get their insurance information to be submitted when the office is open. Think about the times when you have provided care on weekends by phone, helping patients, but not typically being able to charge for your time and expertise. Now you can. Some platforms also allow you to remotely e-prescribe, perform some dry eye evaluations and AMSLA grid monitoring, check acuities, and provide routine contact lens follow-ups. Knowing they can reach you when needed can strengthen your relationship with your patients and handling tasks remotely can help reduce the congestion in your office. If we are seeing fewer patients per day to reduce congestion, this presents an opportunity to explore specialty areas and add services such as myopia management or ocular surface disease treatment. Such premium service offerings can enhance referrals and also provide needed income. If you add a specialty service, remember to let the world know about it, whether through verbal education of patients in the exam room, printed materials, information added to your website, staff education, social media, or all of the above, let your patient base and your community know what you are capable of doing. There's an old adage that fits the current situation. Begin, the rest is easy. In this article, I have offered ideas for several ways to boost practice health as we move forward in and eventually after the COVID-19 pandemic. For some of these, you can start as soon as you finish reading this article. For others, it will take a little more time to write a list of your goals. Once you do, you and your staff can prioritize, brainstorm, and develop action plans. Most of us can make valid claims about our top-notch customer service. Through this horrible period of time, we could expand to become even more patient-centric, going from good to great, as Jim Collins described in his best-selling book. That COVID-19 gray cloud can, indeed, have a silver lining. We just need to seek it and to act on it. Good luck and stay well. We have our up-close column for the final segment of the episode, in which we learn more about Walt Whitley, who is Director of Optometric Services and Residency Program Supervisor at Virginia Eye Consultants in Norfolk, Virginia, and Medical Editor of Dry Eye Coach. We'll hear why he decided to pursue a career in optometry, what has been the most memorable experience of his career so far, and more.
Walt Whitley, thank you so much for finally being our up-close column. We finally got you in. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. When did you decide to pursue a career in optometry, and what or who influenced you to choose this path? That's a great question. You know, I didn't choose optometry until the junior year of college, and essentially I couldn't see the chalkboard anymore, and it was a chalkboard uh, back in those days. <laughs> and so my dad scheduled me to see, see an optometrist, which is one of his buddies, uh, James Conkey. And so Jim got me interested in optometry, and so I do thank him to this day for that. Uh, he also encouraged me to do a residency. Actually, first he had me go to he recommended me go to Pacific. I went to Pacific, and then he recommended me to do a residency. And so I did one with Doug DeVries. And so uh, I did the residency for about a, a year there with him, and then I, I was hired on, practiced there for about four years. Uh, Doug's been a great mentor and has helped me to de develop professionally and to evolve into the clinician and lecturer and leader that uh, I am today. So I do appreciate and thank him for that. What have you learned from your collaborations with the committees and boards you're on, including the AAO and AOA? I love optometry. And over the years, the one thing I've tried to teach our students and residents is that you get out of, out of optometry what you put into it. And so I've always tried to lead by example, by contributing to keep moving our profession forward. And in the end, it's going to benefit our patients, whether it's being involved in academia with our residency program, serving on an AAO committee, or being involved with the AOA and the state associations. We all can make a difference and encourage everyone to get involved and do something. Nonetheless, I couldn't serve on all those committees and boards without the support of my Lovely wife, Lindsay, and my three boys, Beckham, Brock, and Brady. It's important that I always put them first and make a priority for family. But it's important to be involved with everything or something, <laughs> at least one thing. Yes. <laughs> so um, you have been involved in more than two dozen clinical trials. What about them interests you most? I'm using the word love a lot. So I'm going to say I love learning about innovation <laughs> in pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and medical device development. And so clinical research, uh, it's always been something I've been interested in, and it helps keep me on the cutting edge of both science and technology. And it also does bring a unique perspective to patient care. Uh, you know, we have many patients who love to participate in the clinical trials, and we're able to offer our patients the option to contribute to science and the future of patient care. Uh, development process uh, helps me appreciate the details involved to bring the drugs and devices to the market. And it's been a, a, a fun part of my practice and, and something I, I, I'm truly passionate about. Recently, you became medical editor at Dry Eye Coach. What does this new position entail? Dry Eye is one of the hottest topics in eye care, and I do love that one as well. Uh, there's so much to learn and, and so much more that we have yet to learn. I do love to teach, and this uh, position uh, offered an opportunity to collaborate with colleagues and industry members to address a huge unmet need for patients and practices. And so be on the lookout for future programs, podcasts, and opportunities to help take your dry practice to the next level. What has been the most memorable experience of your career so far? Last year, I became president of the Virginia Optometric Association, and we had an awesome celebration banquet for the outgoing president, uh, Jen Weigel. And it was among our Virginia optometry family. Uh, during the meeting, uh, my good buddies, Jeff Michaels, Jerry Neidig, Adam Parker, Joe Droder, and Bokini 
uh, worked with my wife and the rest of the board to make it special uh, with me becoming the incoming president. My wife and kids couldn't make it to the meeting, so they, uh, my kids and, and wife, they made a special congratulations video uh, for me. But then also surprised me with an appearance of my brother Warren Whitley, who's also an optometrist, who flew in uh, from Nevada for the meeting. So uh, it was a, quite a surprise, and uh, it was an <laughs> awesome weekend. And 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 during that presentation as well, um, there was a PowerPoint roast, and so they pretty much roasted me. So who doesn't love getting roasted by your friends? Yeah, sounds like a fun time. <laughs> what recent technological advances do you find exciting? Now that I'm 45, there's a lot of exciting presbyopic technologies uh, that I'm, I'm really excited about. You know, from the drops, and there's numerous uh, companies working on the drops right now to refractive surgical procedures to IOL options. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a half dozen companies working on drops to help improve the near vision. And the early data does look very promising. And so if we have a drop that can last all day to, to, to help with near vision and, and uh, you can still see in the distance, it could be great. And so I'm ready to use them as soon as they are available. Uh, as for cataract surgery, the latest innovations have truly been life changers for many of our patients. Uh, just in this past year, the newest IOLs have included trifocal technology and extended vision IOLs, which have been over-delivering in their results. Patient satisfaction is at an all-time high. And, you know, I thought that the multifocals uh, previous on, previously on the market were impressive, but these new IOL additions have taken things to the next level. What is your favorite family tradition? We love to travel, and our tradition is to vacation every year the week of Thanksgiving. And so how we, how, how we do it is each of the family members, my wife and three boys, they all get to pick a city or place, and we put it in a hat, and pretty much we pick a place out of a hat. And so far, uh, New York City has been the favorite. Uh, we were supposed to go to the Grand Canyon, but due to COVID, uh, we didn't. And so that's still going to be on our list. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to wait till next year to do that. Yeah, that's a bummer. But, you know, hopefully you get there next year. <laughs> oh, we'll be there. <laughs> Thank you so much again for being Mod's Up Close feature. It was so great speaking with you. Remember, if you want to see these articles in their full glory with sidebars, artwork, etc., don't forget to check out the November-December issue online at modernod.com. Also remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. That's it for this episode and for the Mod Pod for this year. From our bubble to yours, we wish you the happiest of holidays in these bizarre times and cheers to the new year. Stay healthy, be well, we'll meet you back here in 2021.